What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. The program, uh, uh, unlike any other program on Catholic Radio, is exactly for you, the non-Catholic. Maybe you were a Catholic years ago, fell away from your faith for whatever reason. Maybe you have never been a Catholic, uh, but you still have some questions about the Catholic faith. We are here to answer those questions today. My personal recommendation, call early because uh, the phones tend to heat up uh, quite a bit early on on Fridays. So uh, call now, 833-288-EWTN if you have a question about the Catholic faith, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us anywhere else outside of North America, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Weekend plans, perhaps? Uh, Just hang out with the family, do housework, do yard work, you know, typical stuff. For me, it's going to be weed whacking. It's got to be done. It's got to be done. Whack away. That's that's me. (laughs) We have uh, an interesting email to lead off today from Witt. Witt says, Dear Dr. Anders, I'm writing to ask the church's stance on demons in the church. Do demons try to prevent souls from attending church? And if so, what can be done about it? Also, I have heard you say time and again that it's the prayers of the righteous which are efficacious. So is the devil after the religious poor of no deed, and could God allow this? Thanks, wit. Yeah, thanks. Let me qualify something about the uh, prayers of the righteous. So St. James says that the, um, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Yeah. It's very powerful. That is not to say that the prayer of the unrighteous goes unheard. Ah. And uh, so every, every unrighteous person gets their prayer heard when they penitently pray for forgiveness, right? If we, if we could only be heard if we were righteous, none of us could ever become righteous because it requires grace to become righteous sure, right? sure. to ask God for help. Uh, it's just that the more righteous you are, obviously, the more your will comes into alignment with the will of God. And the way to, the way to get what you want in prayer is to ask what God wants to give you. you sure, say, All right. sure. Um, but in terms of the demonology... The Church's teaching, the Sacred Scripture teaches that the demonic is real and that that uh, that demons are one agent of temptation, but not the only one. We can also be tempted by our own passions, drawn away from the good by our own bodily desires and improper habits. But they can have an effect. They can tempt. Aversion to the sacred is is one manifestation of uh, of demonic activity. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to suggest that every time someone is averse to going to mass that there's a demonic presence involved. I mean, uh, there could be, I mean, you know, p- people have all kinds of reasons for not wanting to go to Mass. Sure. Uh, maybe they're sick. Um, you know, maybe a priest who abused them 
uh, is they find out going to be the celebrant that day, and they would rather not undergo that kind of double torture. Maybe sure. you know, maybe someone was unkind to them last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, maybe they'd rather watch the football game. Right? That that would be wrong, of course. Yeah. Uh, that'd be a temptation. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily be of demonic origin. Uh, but you do in, in like extreme cases of demonic possession, uh, sort of grotesque aversion to the sacred is one of the symptoms. Appreciate that, Wit. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Antoinetta. She says, I have a question regarding the validity of female Eucharistic ministers in distributing the consecrated host, that is, Jesus, to the congregation. I've always believed that only the ordained were permitted to hold Jesus in their hands. So what is the official Catholic position on this? Thank you, Antoinetta. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, uh, a a safe rule of thumb is that if the church permits it, it's okay. Right? Yeah. That's a safe rule of thumb. Yeah. And uh, since the church permits it, it's okay. Right? This is something the Holy See knows about. This is something the bishops know about. It's not going on in the dark. It's not being hidden from the hierarchs. It's actually with their express permission that women can distribute Holy Communion and Sacred Mass and Holy Mass. And your, your position about uh, only the priest or the ordained person is allowed to hold the Blessed Sacrament, that's not correct. That would be a kind of superstition. Um, laity can hold the Blessed Sacrament. They can distribute it if they have the proper uh, faculties to do so, if they've been appointed by the priest to distribute Holy Communion, and there may be an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion when they take it outside the parish and mm, give it to yeah. the sick. Uh, and for that matter, reception of communion on the hand uh, is an ancient practice in the Catholic tradition, and we find written document evidence of that. Uh, uh, you know, by the likes of Cyril of Jerusalem, who gives instructions on the proper way to receive communion in your hand, going mm. back to the fourth century. So, sure. uh, yeah, this is uh, that's incorrect. Appreciate that, Antoinetta. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Uh, this one quickly from Amy, Doctor Anders. When we pray at Mass and say, "Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed," doesn't this change wording that's in the Holy Bible? And if so, isn't changing words found in the Holy Bible an error? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So um, it's not meant to be a direct quotation of sacred scripture. Okay. It is a paraphrase. It's it's a prayer that alludes to the language of Scripture, ah. and that is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. And you know, I mean, it would be—I think it would be disingenuous if I stood up and I said, "Well, you know, it says in the Gospel of Mark that," and then I deliberately twist the passage to my own ideological ends. I mean, that would be that would be uh, illegitimate. Yeah. Um, but uh, but. You know, we we're, the work of translation, when you take a text from you know, one language into another, uh-huh. always inv- involves mm-hmm. a certain measure of interpretation and sort of trying to find the right idiom in which to express it in a different culture. And so those kinds of changes in language are very normal when we're quoting Scripture or any other kind of text. And, uh, and look, the Bible is the Word of God, and we venerate it. Um, but uh, but they're, they're words— and words can be reordered and rearranged and, mm, and yeah. discussed and, you know, dissected and exegeted and uh, rendered into poetry. And there's all kinds of things you can do with words that are very respectful. 
the mere fact that you've reordered them in some fashion for some poetic reason is not in itself unacceptable. Amy, thanks so much for your email. Uh, In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, and we'll talk with Mike in Arlington, Texas, Tim in Portland, Oregon, and uh, lots more. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN, for Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. It's called to Communion on this Friday afternoon with Dr. David Anders here to answer your questions at 833-288-EWTN. Uh, right now we've got uh, sold out phones, so uh, if you do get a busy signal, call us back, 833-288-3986. Let me tell you about something uh, very handy and useful, now available from EWTN's religious catalog. You can spot your bag, your luggage in a crowd with a St. Christopher luggage tag. You know, St. Christopher is the patron saint of travelers and motorists, and this large, durable luggage tag is made out of flexible, lightweight plastic. It's made to withstand the rough treatment that luggage can sometimes receive. It also works for uh, golf clubs and gym bags, any other items you may need to place contact information on. And we also have some other luggage tag styles for you, including a guardian angel luggage tag and a St. Anthony luggage tag in case that uh, bag does get lost. Each of these are 5 inches by 3 inches and include a clear luggage loop. Check it out now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's go to Mike in Arlington, Texas, listening via podcasting. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, Dr. Dave. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on, and I enjoy your show, and hope to see you in my part of the country sometime soon. Thank you. Um, I have a question about the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, I've heard you discuss before how penal substitution um, isn't isn't based on— there's no precedent in Scripture for sort of us imputing our sins on Christ. And you referred to, like, Leviticus, Leviticus 16, uh, for the sacrifice of atonement, that's sort of the model of what Christ's sacrifice was. So I'm reading that, and I do see that there's this other goat, there's a goat that's sacrificed, but then there's this other scapegoat, and they put their hands on the goat, and then there is some sort of imputing their sins on this goat. Now, I know he doesn't then send righteousness back their way, but there is some sort of imputation there, and I wanted you to discuss that, the scapegoat, and, and is that a type um, for our salvation or, or, or whatever happens there on the cross. Yeah, so, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate the question. So, n- no place in the New Testament is Christ ever referred to as a scapegoat. The scapegoat is never referenced as a type of Christ or an allegory for Christ. And uh, that's just not the metaphor that's used. Uh, and uh, you mean there? I know that there are theological traditions and commentators that try to make that analogy, typically because they want to squeeze the atonement into an imputation model, and so they'll look to the scapegoat as the as their Old Testament analog, even though the New Testament explicitly doesn't do that. It it looks to the to the temple sacrifices as the analog for understanding the nature of Christ's atonement. Um, so, uh, what was going on with the scapegoat is an entirely different question. And, um, and you know, to be honest with you, many biblical scholars understand the scapegoat to be offered not to God, but to a demon, right? That it was driven out into wild places in the desert and not understood at all as a sacrifice to God, not an atoning sacrifice to God. Um, I'm now going to go way out of my depth here 
because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just telling you that up front because I'm not a Old Testament biblical scholar, and I'm certainly not an expert in this. Uh, but at least one thing that seems to me to be going on is that um, the Old Testament is just hyper-concerned with the question of ritual purity, and um, uh, which often involves things like ritual ablutions of the body, you know, wearing mm. the right kind of clothes and sure. avoiding the things that are ritually impure and unclean uh, so that I can come into the presence of God, which is understood to be holy. Uh, but there's not necessarily a moral component to that. I mean, there can be, of course, but, mm. but you can become ritually impure without there being any moral fault at all. Um, and the, I think it, as a piece with this whole notion of purification— and rites of purification, the idea of sort of sending my sins away from the presence of the covenant community so that they can come into the presence of God, uh, seems to me to at least be part of what's going on in the scapegoat ritual. Um, but that's that's a very different mechanism from uh, what we think is happening in the atonement. I mean, the purpose of the death of Christ is not so that Christ, you know, carries our unworthiness away out of the sight of God. And there's, there's nothing about that in the New Testament theology of the atonement or the church's historical reflection on the atonement. But rather, Christ and his passion and death are understood to be exemplary. I mean, Jesus is a moral exemplar. The uh-huh. Bible says this explicitly. Peter says that we should imitate his martyrdom. You know, Christ gave himself, gave himself up willingly to death, and we should do likewise. Um, Paul extols his great humility uh, in the Incarnation, and, you know, though being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the likeness of a servant, being found in human likeness, and was obedient unto death, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Uh, That's the opposite of what happens to the scapegoat. The scapegoat is not exalted to the highest place. It's quite the opposite, quite the contrary. So I, I just don't think this is—there's uh, no reason to take that as the proper metaphor for understanding what's going on in the death of Jesus. Mike, is that helpful for you? Yeah, it sure is. Thank you. Thank you so much. At the, I've always felt sorry for the goat, you know? Kind of got a raw deal on that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that uh, opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon. Here on EWTM, Tim. Tim is listening in Portland, Oregon, on the great Modern Day Radio. Hello, Tim. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. I just want to thank you, first of all, for taking my phone call. Thank you. And um, I have a question about um, the righteousness of the believer. Um, We know that a righteousness is nothing we produce, but it was imparted to us, and that really, um, the crux of it for me is found in Hebrews chapter 9, where it says, uh, particularly in verse 12, that neither by the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And we know that once we confess that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that sacrifice is applied to us, and that's why Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So my question is, Jesus Christ, you know, the, the veil was rent in two, giving us full access to God, and our approach to God is not because of our righteousness, but that which has been given to us through Christ presenting his blood on our behalf, and God accepted that. So when we receive Jesus Christ for personal safety... Is there a question here? Tim, have you got a question? Yes, sir. So my question is, um, so when I see that, I ask and wonder why it's, it's 
necessary to go before another man, um, another. Sure, senator. sure, sure. Absolutely, I can res- I can speak to that. And I really appreciate the question. Thanks for all the biblical citations. Being Catholic, I venerate sacred scripture and am deeply familiar with those. I, but Catholics understand them in a very different way. Uh, one thing I will agree with you. And that is that Christ imparts righteousness to us. That is, that is emphatically the teaching of the Catholic Church. It has been the teaching of the Catholic Church from the very beginning, that Christ imparts righteousness to us. However, the question of how Christ imparts righteousness to us, that is a point of conflict between Catholics and Protestants. Because the Catholic Church, following the teaching of sacred scripture and of Jesus, holds that the love of God is poured into our hearts. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 5 through this circumcision of our hearts. In Romans 2, 25-29, Paul says that it's not circumcision done in the flesh by the hands of men, it's the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, whereby we are enabled to keep the righteous requirements of the law. And so your position that God doesn't accept us because of righteous things that we've done, that's an entailment that Scripture doesn't make. What Scripture says is that righteousness is given to us by the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts who changes our character. But then Romans 2.13 says it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So I agree with you that righteousness is not from us in the sense that we cannot produce it without the grace of God. But we are genuinely the ones who are doing the righteous deeds by the power of God, whereby God then can declare, a tr- declare us righteous. That's explicitly the teaching of the, of the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Paul says... It's not those who hear, it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And Jesus Christ, of course, makes this extremely plain. A passage like Matthew 25, he says, Many will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, Away from me, I never knew you, because you didn't feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, visit the sick and uh, imprisoned and shelteredless, and that sort of thing. And, of course, Revelation 20, we read about the final judgment. Emphatically, the text says explicitly, We will be judged according to our works. Now, uh, these are works done in grace— They're not works we can do on our own. They're works that must be imparted to us by the Holy Spirit of God. But they nevertheless are our works through our cooperation. That's why St. Augustine would say in praise to God, he'd say, Lord, you crown your own gifts. You give us the ability to do good, and then you reward us for the good that you worked within us. So, um, So it is imparted to us, but it's imparted by infusing Christ's righteousness to us, not by imputing just some legal standing without an actual transformation of character. Uh, regarding the question of why then, if Christ imparts his righteousness to us, would we need to have human mediators? Well, um, so basically because he imparts his righteousness to us through human mediators, not through the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, which you rightly note has been destroyed, and the tearing of the temple veil is a powerful symbol for the destruction of the Levitical priestly order, which touched the body and not the heart, uh, at least not by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, uh, But I'm going to point you to a text in sacred scripture that Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all come to unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God so that we can come to the full stature of Christ. But the implication being that there is a growing up into the person of Jesus that requires uh, mediation, that requires the helps of the Christian ministry instituted by Christ. Just because I believe and receive this gift of grace doesn't mean that from faith and baptism alone that I come to the full measure of the stature of Christ. That's why Paul can pray in Ephesians, 
chapter 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you might know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of his holy people, and then his incomparably great power for those of us who believe, right? Why would Paul need to pray for the enlightening of the eyes, the opening of the heart of those who had faith and grace, if there wasn't a, a deepening of the Christian experience that could take place through the mediation of Paul's prayers, Yeah. right? I mean, his prayer was not ineffective. It was not uh, odious for Paul to pray for his disciples to grow in grace and holiness and wisdom and knowledge. Uh, and, of course, Christ himself explicitly, explicitly allows for the mediation of forgiveness to come through human agents. In John chapter 20, he said to the apostles, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. Um, now, I mean, he said that for a reason. Christ gave the power of the forgiveness of sins to the apostles for a reason. That doesn't diminish the unique mediation of Christ. It's how Christ exercises his unique mediation. He does so through ministers, through agents, through intermediaries, so that, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, we might all come to unity in our experience of the faith. See, what happens when you have this spirituality of, I don't need any mediation, and there are many people who believe that. If you have the spirituality of, I don't need any mediation, then I don't need my fellow Christians in order to come to the fullness of Christ. That's what you're asserting. That leads to individualistic Christianity, where every man is his own interpreter, every man is his own pope, uh, every man is his own authority, and guess what? We have diverse intuitions about what knowing Christ means. And so you have 50,000 different denominations and, you know, any amount of, uh, of, uh, of uh, narcissistic egotism masquerading as spirituality. So by creating a structure of visible authority, a visible society with visible rights and visible mediators, we have an objective way to determine what unity actually looks like within the body of Christ. Tim, thank you so much for your call. Glad that you're uh, checking in from Portland today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go to uh, Mark now in Barrie, Illinois, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, uh, last Monday we were at the Illinois State Fair. We walked by a booth uh, that was uh, manned by a Protestant gentleman. He had a banner above his head. It says, what are the three things that God cannot do? Uh, he looked like uh, he was eager to debate. Uh, however, we were with other people. I, I had this urgent appointment with a corn dog, <laughs> so we went on by. And um, I was just wondering, what would the camp Catholic response be uh, to this gentleman? And uh, I've been thinking along the lines of what would uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, would say. Mm. Right. Yeah, thanks. So I think, actually, the, the number of things that God can't do is infinite. I don't think there are only three. I think there's an infinite number of things that God can't do. And you could just stick to geometrical paradoxes, for one. I mean, God can't make a square circle that's all in one plane, right? Mm. You know, God God couldn't make a square, a hexagon. I mean, he could make a hexagon. Multiply examples, okay, yeah, of, yeah. Of, 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 uh, of just absurd uh, uh, logical contradictions that God couldn't make. God, God, you know, couldn't make a. Um, um, well, I won't go there. <laughs> uh, well, all kinds of things God can't. Okay, do. okay. All right. Um, uh, basically, the Catholic position on the nature of God is that God is the very act of being itself, and uh, and so the ground of the law of non-contradiction, right? The thing cannot both be and not be in the same way, in the same respect, at the same time. 
uh, is grounded in the very being of God. Like that's, that is of the nature of being. God's own being can't be and not be simultaneously. God can't exist and not exist in the same way at the same time. Uh, you know, God couldn't will his own non-existence. God's also the, the ground and source of all that's good and true, uh, so that God can't act contrary to his own nature. Um, you know, God, God can't will, for example, um, that, uh, that child torture be acceptable. Right? That, he can't do that. that that's, a, that's, that's contrary to the good of the person, which good God is. Right? Uh, I mean, you could just multiply examples all day long to this. Sure, sure. Mark, uh, thank you so much for your call. Good luck with that corn dog. Uh, in a moment, we'll be talking with Bassam, also Jeremy in Detroit, John in San Diego, Diana in Bryan, Texas, Danny on the road in Texas. I told you this was a busy day, and it certainly is. Call to communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this busy Friday afternoon. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to two more members of our EWTN radio family. New Hampshire Catholic Community Radio. That's in Concord, New Hampshire, beautiful part of our country, celebrating their eighth year with us. How about that? Also, Faith Up Radio in Kalua, Kona, Hawaii, marking six years with EWTN. Congratulations to Mike Bellino at WICX and Kathy Warren at KFIP from all of us here at EWTN. Back to the phones. Here is Bassam in Orchard Lake Village, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hey, Bassam, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, today's reading, there's uh, three lines at the end that Jesus explains to why someone is not able to get married. I just think it's some, if you can shed some light to all these three, one of which is says some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. And the other one is they were made so by others, and then they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those three lines, who would, how does that apply to someone? I mean, who would that be for? Yeah, you? sure. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, some people are, for example, a eunuch. Uh, a eunuch cannot validly contract a marriage because a eunuch cannot consummate a marriage. A eunuch cannot... Uh, enter into the kind of relationship that would be naturally fulfilled in the bearing of children, and that would be, you know, a, a, a valid impediment to achieving, you know, real marital union, which is for the sake of raising a family. Um, of course, some people, uh, you know, are born with a congenital defect that way. Some people might have it imposed on them by some barbaric enormity that some other person uh, perpetrates against them. Uh, but then there are those who who are, as it were, eunuchs, that doesn't mean they castrate themselves, but they, they take up a life that might as well be in the sense that they renounce marriage and sexuality. Uh-huh. It's, it's probable that Jesus had a specific historical group in mind when he mentioned this. He was likely referring to the Essene community, which lived out in the wilderness and the deserts of Judea, uh, that practiced celibacy. And so he may very well have had that group in mind, and there are Catholic scholars that think that's what he had in mind. And it's a pattern, of course, for the, the celibacy of Catholic religious and, and those Catholic clergy that embrace that discipline. There you go. Bassam, thank you so much uh, for your call today. Jeremy is in Detroit listening on the EWTN app, a free download. Hey there, Jeremy. What's on your mind today, sir? Why do we say, 
uh, and God the Father, and why do we say, uh, we believe in one holy Catholic Apostolic Church? Um, we don't say something like we believe two plus two equals four. We say we know that two plus two yes, is four. Yes, yes. So you you broke up a little on me there. So I'm going to restate the question for the sake of the audience that may not have heard it. Uh, Jeremy wants to know why do we say in the creed why do we say we believe as opposed to we know, and it is because we believe and we do not know. There's a difference between knowing and believing, um, uh, and we can quibble about the proper definition of knowledge. Uh, but but something about knowledge it's is typically uh, you know I have it by by uh, you know by direct empirical experience or by some sort of logical inference. I mean that's that's how I know things. Um, belief is not like that. Belief I is something that I hold. I align my life with it. I, I put trust in something, but it's based on testimony. It's not based on immediate empirical knowledge or or some kind of logical inference. So an analogy would be. If my wife tells me, you know, I'm going to go pick up the kids from school this afternoon, you don't have to. You know, you can stay at the office or whatnot. I don't, I don't know that in the way in which I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4 or the way in which I know what I had for breakfast. But I can rely on that because my wife is trustworthy. That's faith. That, that reliance on trustworthy mm. witness is what we call faith. And there are things about the Catholic faith that we know— and there are things about God that we know, but there's a great deal that we have to take uh, on reliable testimony, and that's what we call faith. Appreciate your call, Jeremy. Thank you so much for it. It's called a communion here on EWTN. John is in San Diego listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, Dr. Anders. I have a question regarding uh, the Protestant belief of the b- baptism versus personal conversion. Yes. So, question is, if the a Protestant came up and told me that we are saved by personal conversion, not by baptism, can you explain this? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So, first of all, um, the it is a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. So, we can be saved by baptism and personal conversion. They, they don't work at cross-purposes to one another. And the grace of baptism in a person's life can affect personal conversion. But, of course, there's also the case of the soul who, who is baptized, say, as an infant, nurtured in the faith, and is never conscious of a time that they weren't deliberately following the Christian faith and the example of Christ and striving after the virtues and obedience to parents and all of the rest of it. And, and it would be probably inappropriate or to to describe such a soul as being in need of conversion because their whole life has been characterized by a conversion away from their own egotism and towards the path of God. And typically when people talk about conversion, they're really thinking about more of a kind of psychological crisis moment uh-huh. where someone changes paths. And, and there are definitely souls about whom we really wouldn't say that, and yet they're deeply Christian and spiritual people. Uh, but conversion can work together with faith and baptism. Look at somebody like St. Francis of Assisi, who is both a very self-conscious Catholic, and then at a stage of his life entered into a much deeper experience of Catholic life that would definitely be characterized as conversion. Now, as to where this Protestant idea comes from, I, I, I really think it's supremely ironic. I really do, because early Protestant theologians all affirmed the Catholic doctrine that faith begins in baptism— I mean, Luther clearly believed that. John Calvin clearly believed that. The Anglican tradition clearly believes that. 
Uh, baptism is the rite of initiation into the Christian faith. And why do we think that? Well, Catholics and those Protestants think that's because that's what Scripture tells us. I mean, St. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promises for you and for your children. And Paul says, if we, we die with Christ in baptism, or raised again with him to new life, he says in Galatians 3 that all who have been baptized have clothed themselves with Christ. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 that baptism saves us. So it's emphatically baptism that initiates us into the Christian life, and early Protestants believe that. Right. But Calvin, who's one Protestant theologian, put a wrinkle in there. Calvin uh, believed that, that once a person was genuinely regenerate by the Holy Spirit, once the power of the Spirit was at work in their life to save them, that such a person would necessarily persevere to the end, that he would, he would, he would necessarily be saved. And, uh, but he had an empirical problem, namely that there were obviously baptized people who shipwrecked their faith and walked away from the Christian life and became apostates or deeply immoral people. And, and so the way he coped with that was to suggest that baptism saves but it only saves the elect. It only saves those whom God has already foreordained to be saved by baptism. And so he invented something that had never been seen before in Christianity, namely the idea that you could have a church consisting of baptized people in two classes, those that have been genuinely renewed by the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and those who have just had a washing, <laughs> right? And, and it became very important for Calvin and his heirs, especially the Puritans, to be able to determine which of those two groups you were in. And so the, this, this emphasis in Protestantism on knowing for sure that you're saved, it comes out of this tradition, right? And Puritanism was all about trying to come up with tests to determine how do I know if I'm one of those people in whom baptism has had this effect. Now, what eventually came of that separation you know, of these, these two groups of baptized people was the idea that baptism itself does nothing and that all that really matters— see, one of the marks of this election that Calvinists and Puritans looked for was conversion. So if somebody was converted, then that would be evidence that they were one of the elect. Well, eventually what happened is it just degraded. The spirituality degraded to the point where conversion became the whole thing. Mm. And they just dismissed with the importance of the sacrament altogether. That wasn't the way it started, but that's where it ended up. The separation of, of, uh, of uh, you know, of uh, the, the, well, you see the point. Um, yes. And the Catholic position has always been that everybody's regenerated in baptism, but the regenerate can fall away. So this Calvinist idea that everybody who has the Spirit of God will necessarily persevere is just false. And so the, the sum total of the regenerate is not coextensive with the sum total of the elect, the way, the way Calvin held. And we do appreciate that. Uh, John, we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much for checking in from San Diego. Call to communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for Register Radio. That is coming up Saturday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern. Matthew Bunsen and Jeanette DeMello will be covering some recent Catholic news, including the Catholic Church that was spared in the Maui fire. You may have heard about that. Also, that court ruling reinstating limits on abortion pills and Ohio pro-lifers gearing up for a very aggressive abortion ballot measure, and that'll be in November. All that coming up uh, tomorrow afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern, Register Radio, one of the great programs we have for you every weekend here on EWTN. Danny is on the road somewhere in Texas listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Danny, what's on your mind today, sir? 
Hello, I'm calling from a hotel room in Texas. I actually live in Florida. And a few months ago, I made my decision to convert to Catholicism. My dad had done it 20 years ago, and now I feel like it's my time. I've been to Mass probably three or four times in the past three months when I'm in town at my local at my local church, and they're asking me to start to start the catechism classes in September weekly on Thursdays, which I'm unable to do with the economy and driving the truck the way I do. And I was wondering, I have a lot of questions, but I guess my my question is is how do I how can I move forward in my in my conversion? when I'm on the road and I'm not able to physically commit to being to the catechism classes there at our, at our church. I'm so glad to hear from you, and you are not the first truck driver to call me with this question. In fact, we've heard this question a lot, and I will tell you what I've told other people who drive a truck for a living when they want to become Catholic, and that is you need to tell the clergyman at your parish about your professional situation, your intent to become Catholic, the impossibility of attending RCIA at any point in the foreseeable future because your job keeps you on the road for so many days a week and request that he appoint uh, either himself or a deacon or an RCIA director of some or some agent that he can that he can deputize to catechize you privately at a schedule that would be uh, that would work with your with your profession with your work and I have seen that more than once. And uh, I mean, I can think about five years ago or maybe six years ago, we had a fellow exactly in your situation. And he called the show, said, I want to become Catholic. I said, go find a deacon yeah. right, who can work with you. And he called back a few weeks later and said, I got me my deacon. And then Easter rolls around. And he called back again to say, just want to let you know I made it into the church. Now, yeah. um, I'll also tell you, you remember the, the, uh, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge? And the widow asks, and the judge doesn't want to hear from her, and she keeps banging on the door, and eventually he gives in. Sometimes Catholic ministry can be like that, right? So if, <laughs> if first you don't succeed, try, try again. Yep. And if you approach yep. the priest and he says, no, no, you got to go to RCA, my recommendation is um, try never another clergyman. You know, like poke around the diocese, look at another parish. Uh, you will find someone who's willing to do this for you. Uh, it might take asking more than once, but you will get there. By the way, Danny, I, I know that you're listening on Sirius XM, and we're delighted to partner with them and have been doing so for something like almost 25 years now, which is fantastic. You may also want to uh, grab the EWTN app for your smartphone, uh, and you can listen to a lot of our podcast programs. You can listen to news and, and learn a whole lot about the Catholic faith that way as well. Uh, good luck to you, Danny. Danny, hope it works out very well. Here's Diana in Bryan, Texas. And uh, Diana is listening, let's see here, on Guadalupe Radio. Diana, what's on your mind today? Yes, I have a grandson that is 12 years old that prayed really hard for something and didn't get it and decided that God's not real. So he's going to be an atheist, and he doesn't go to communion. He doesn't listen in church or in religion class. And I was just wondering if you had any advice. Yeah, thanks. So I don't believe in the God that he rejected. And the Catholic Church does not believe in the God that he rejected. So he seems to have had a conception of God as, uh, you know, someone who exists, among other things, to give me what I want when I ask for it. That's not who God is. Never has been the Church's position. It's worth pointing out that... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
did not get what he asked for in prayer. Lord, take this cup from me, Mm -hmm. but not my will, but thine be done. And the ultimate value and purpose of prayer is not that my will be done. It is that my will come to be aligned with God's will. Yes. So, so let's, you know, this is a bit difficult for 12-year-olds, but your, your, your 12-year-old's uh, grandson has a conception. Every 12-year-old knows this. They all have a conception of fairness. That's not fair! <laughs> you can't do that. That's not fair. Everyone has a conception of fairness, right? And presumably, I think they could be persuaded that since they want to hold the world to the standard of fairness, they would like their own lives to uphold that standard of fairness. I'd like to become the kind of person who could uphold the standard of fairness and be fair in my dealings with others, and so on and so forth with the other virtues. But what do I find in myself? I find that my habits, my inclinations, my passions are at war with the good that my reason and my soul know to be true. Things like the standard of fairness, for example, which every 12-year-old recognizes. And so I find it difficult to do the good that I know to be good. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 7. And the primary purpose of prayer is to meditate on the example of Christ and his teaching and to absorb his personality so that I can be gradually transformed into the kind of person who can follow my own advice, who can do the reasonable good that every, even an atheist can know to be true. And that's the, the Catholic faith is structured in that way from, from the ground up. How do I become a different kind of human being so that I can live a virtuous, true, good life. And that's the ultimate point of prayer. And uh, if God gave me whatever I asked for, however emphatically I asked, when I asked, it would have the opposite effect. It would have the opposite effect. So if we reconceive what we think, who is this God that I'm rejecting? What are my expectations about him? And what is the purpose and meaning and direction of my life? Uh, then the question of the intelligibility of the, of the Catholic faith becomes a bit more graspable, I think. Diana, thank you so much for your call. Daniel's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Daniel says, aside from the name itself, priests are referred to as father for multiple reasons, as a sign of respect, because they act as spiritual leaders in our lives and as the head of a parish. Now, many Protestants claim that when Catholics address priests as father, the term father, They are engaging in an unbiblical practice that Jesus forbade, call no man your father. I was wondering about this, and how do I defend it? Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So if it's unbiblical to refer to anyone as father, then why do the saints do exactly that? Why does Paul say to Timothy, you're my son, and to the Corinthians, I have become your father? Why does Elisha the prophet say to Elijah, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel? Um... The, 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 it is evident from Matthew 23 and parallel passages in the synoptics where Christ says, call no man father. He also says, call no man rabbi. All his disciples called him rabbi. Yep. Call no man teacher. They called him good teacher. What should yeah. I do inherit to eternal life? I mean, they, even his own disciples didn't follow this when they talked to him, <laughs> right? 
it's definitely got nothing to do specifically with the Catholic priesthood. I mean, the context is quite obvious that Jesus is saying it's, it's parallel to or analogous to, you know, don't seek the highest place or say prayers in public to be seen by men. Don't, don't delight in titles and positions. Uh, you know, don't become an ecclesiastical careerist who's in there for your own self-aggrandizement, your mm, reputation. Yeah. And these are the kinds of dispositions that are being condemned, certainly not the use of the word pater, you know, I mean, like, it's, it's definitely not a prohibition of calling your dad your dad. I mean, am I supposed to call my dad Louie when I'm growing up? That's disrespectful, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, that, that's not in view, and no more so is the, is the priesthood itself in view. And the fact that other evidences in Scripture positively contradict this ruling, and we see uh, religious authority figures referring to themselves and others as father or using this kind of paternal imagery— uh, shows the way we are to take Christ's uh, command. Do appreciate that, uh, Daniel. Thank you so much for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Here's an email from Carol. I have some friends who are Episcopal who have a real animosity against the Catholic Church because they cannot receive communion. How do I respond to this? I am a former Episcopalian. I agree with the Catholic Church, but their hostility sometimes overwhelms me. Any advice? That's from Carol. Yeah, so here's, here's what I think is going on when, when Protestants have a real beef with Catholics for the Church saying you can't receive communion in the Catholic Church. Because, see, in the Protestant Church, or many Protestant churches, the idea is um, I belong to the Church when I say so, and the Church is what I say it is. And so it's, it's very common among many Protestants to believe that beyond my denomination, there is some kind of invisible spiritual unity that unites all sincere believers around the world, and that knowledge that I'm one of those people uh, means that I'm part of the Church, conceived invisibly and in that abstract way. And, and they're willing to let Catholics into that club. They're willing to concede that, yeah, we're all members of the body of Christ because of our sincere relationship with Jesus, and Maybe some of you Catholics have a sincere relationship to Jesus as well, and on that basis, you know, we're all brothers in the Lord. Uh, and, and then they want to impose that ecclesiology on the Catholic Church. Why don't you Catholics think that our theology of the Church is the right one? Right? That's also an imposition. Like, the, the fact of their desiring communion in the Catholic Church would seem to suggest that they want, by their participation, to signal that the Catholic Church is just another denomination like theirs is. So they want to dissolve all the distinctives of Catholic life down to their common denominator, um, which I think is kind of disrespectful to Catholic ecclesiology. The Catholic position, by contrast, is this, that Christ didn't come to found an invisible society. Uh, Jesus gives commands in Matthew 18 for kicking people out of the Church. You can't be kicked out of an invisible society. Nope. Right? Christ established a visible institution. It's as visible as the nation of France, right? It's that visible with objective authority, lines of authority, uh, objective doctrinal teaching, sacrament and ritual, whereby we can identify those that are in and those that are out. Now, to be out of the Catholic Church does not mean that you're damned. Uh, and in fact, the Church explicitly teaches that outside the formal boundaries of Catholicism, there are elements of truth and sanctification. So Protestants, yes, they can be saved, but they do so with an only imperfect union with the Church that Christ founded. And the sacrament of Holy Communion is, among other things, the sacrament of the Church's unity. It's by our common participation in the Eucharist 
that we acknowledge that this body, this Catholic Church, is the church that Christ founded. And we are expressly told by Christ and the apostles that we're to have unity in the faith in what we believe and, and, and how we act. And disunity is a disqualifier. I mean, specifically, Paul teaches, when you have this disunity in the body, you cannot go to communion because you're bearing witness against yourselves. It's a yeah. kind of performative contradiction. And so if someone rejects the teaching of the Catholic Church and yet insists on receiving communion in the Catholic Church, is it, it is as if they're saying with their actions, I believe the Catholic faith, uh, but in their heart they deny it. Or worse, that they're saying, I reject the Catholic faith, but I insist that the Catholic Church concede my view of what the Church is, right? Which is why, a kind of arrogance, I think, and that's, that's why this animus about it. Why, why won't you accept my view of the Church, you Catholics, you? Mm, right? yeah. we're, not, we're not judging. That's another thing I really want to make straight. We're not judging non-Catholics. We're not saying you're bad people, you're going to hell. In fact, St. Paul tells us explicitly, Catholics are not to judge people outside the church. They were only to judge those within. And we do that. We do judge people inside the church. And where do we judge them? We judge them in holy uh, confession. When you go to confession, you literally put yourself at the judgment of the priest. Yeah. And because the priest can judge you, he can admit you to holy communion as someone who's made your peace with God and is worthy to go specifically, precisely because the non-Catholic does not submit to the judgment of the Church, is not judged by the Church. The judge cannot pass a verdict about them one way or another, and therefore cannot safely admit them to Holy Communion. It's it's really tough for for some folks to figure this out, but th th they don't well, it's, understand— It's because it. they presume a very different understanding of what the Church is, and they just they just think that everyone should go along with that presumption. Well, but you also nailed it when you said uh, just another denomination. Just, that's exactly they it. They don't They want get to reduce it. Catholicism to just another denomination. And it isn't. And it's not. All right. Appreciate that. And uh, thank you, Carol, for your email. And I want to thank you, Dr. David Anders, and hope you Thanks, have Tom. a wonderful weekend. You too. Appreciate that. Don't forget we do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio. We bring you our live broadcast at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore of that same show at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can check out the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you in the next hour or so. It takes a while for these things to upload, but it should be there very soon at EWTN.com radio. Look for the podcast button, EWTN.com radio. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hope you have a wonderful weekend yourselves. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. Mm -hmm.